Hi, I'm Josh Hamilton. And I'm Joe Skinner. And this is the American Masters Podcast, where we have conversations with the people who change us. Today, we talk to playwright Lynn Nottage. There's one man who spoke quite eloquently about his frustration of being locked out of his factory and falling into a very deep depression. He saw the play and he said at the end, he was able to shed tears and let go of some of that burden he was carrying. And that's one of the things that theater can do is that we can offer people catharsis. Lynn Nottage has won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama not just once, but twice. First in 2009 for Ruined, and most recently for the 2017 play Sweat. Sweat explores the lives of several blue-collar workers meeting at a bar in Reading, Pennsylvania, the site for much of her research for the play. Nottage began work on Sweat in 2011, years before issues of post-industrial economies in the Rust Belt really became a focal point in American politics. Much of her research process reminds me of the pre-production involved in making a documentary. She embedded herself within the working-class community of Reading, interviewing residents as she wrote about their lives. It was a prescient decision for her to base her work on this consequential American narrative about a struggling working-class community and the various intersections of social dynamics that come along with that. Her meticulous focus on research is a work style you can see throughout her career and offers a lot of insight into how these real-life investigations can yield great works of art. And I think it shows how potent art can be when it reveals a truth about our collective reality or shines a light on a reality that few people may have been paying attention to. Joe sat down with Lynn Nottage, and their conversation starts with sweat. Hi, Lynn. Thanks so much for coming in. This season on the podcast, we're talking with artists who have directly incorporated their origin stories into their work. Your play Sweat has an origin story and writing process that feels very important to our current moment. Could you talk about how Sweat came to be and if it came from a personal place for you? Sure, I can talk about um, Sweat. I do think very much that Sweat comes from a, a deeply personal place, and it began for me with um, an email that I received from one of my closest friends and neighbors who lived two doors down from me. She's a mother of two. Um, it's someone who I saw on a regular basis, and I had been traveling, and I returned home, and it was probably midnight, and I opened up my email, and the very first one was from her, and she was basically saying that she had she had been struggling for a number of months, that she hadn't been working and that she was in financial dire straits and was somewhat embarrassed to share that and had been hiding it from her closest friends. But she felt like she was at a point that she, she needed to be very open and honest. And I read the email and it, it actually made me cry. It made me very upset because um, I realized that um, she was masking what was going on in her life and didn't feel that she could be honest with her closest friends. And also made me realize that there are many people like her who live, you know, one or two doors away from us who we we don't necessarily understand their their financial circumstances or their emotional circumstances and we're going about our lives. And so the, the next day I I reached out to her and said, I'm really sorry, what can I do um, to help you? She's like, I don't really want anything. I just needed to to release this and let people know. And um, this confession happened to coincide with the beginning of Occupy Wall Street. It was the very first week. And I said, well, you know, there are people who are gathering in, Duca in Zuccotti um, Park. Why don't we go down there and see what this is about? And so we went down and we spent the entire day and we marched in a circle and we chanted. And at the end of the day, she felt better. 
um, knowing that there was a community of people who were in similar um, in a similar predicament and that there was an outlet for her frustration and for her sorrow. Um, I left there feeling a little frustrated because I thought, I, I need to know more. I need to understand how she got to that point, how all of us got to this point. And that really... Um, led me to wanting to understand how um, economic stagnation was really sort of shifting our American narrative. And I went about trying to find a city that I felt was a microcosm of what was happening to the nation as a whole. And I happened upon Reading, Pennsylvania in particular, because at the, that moment in time, it was the, the poorest city of its size in America. And I thought it was fascinating that it was a city that was so close to Philadelphia, so close to New York City, and yet could be a city that was um, undergoing such um, an um, economic strife. And it was also driving distance from New York, which was very convenient for me. <laughs> and I began going just before the new year assuming that I would make one or two trips, not knowing that it would be a two-and-a-half-year journey and that it would be a city that I came to know quite well and a city that I would come to love and make friendships. And um, it was there that I really discovered my play, Sweat. Um, and Sweat, um, it, it, took, it took a while for me to figure out, honestly, what I wanted to write about because I went into the city with no preconceived notions. I went there really to listen, and I told people repeatedly, it's like, I can't really do anything for, for you other than listen to your stories, but I'm curious about what you're, what you're going through. And as a playwright, uh, um, I could possibly amplify what I, I hear. And then um, I happened to sit in a circle with a, a group of steel workers. Um, who were working in a um, metal tubing factory who had been locked out of their factory for 93 weeks. And um, I sat in a circle, and there was maybe 15, um, f 15, 15 of, of them, and they began to tell their stories, and I found that my heart was moved in ways that I hadn't expected. Um, by and large, they were middle-aged men who had worked in this factory probably on average between 25 to 30 years. And they were broadsided um, by the company that, that had moved part of their, their equipment to Mexico overnight. Um, they went away for a weekend, and when they came back, half of the equipment was gone. And they were basically told that if you want to continue to work at this factory, you're going to have to make enormous concessions. And those concessions involved... Um, letting go of their pension plans, um, taking a considerable pay, pay cut, um, cutting down on vacations. And they were not willing to do that because they had invested 25, 30 years to, to, to acquire those, those things and found themselves, instead of striking, locked out of the factory. And how did those people receive you when you were conducting the research there? You, you know, it's, I'm often asked when I go into these places whether people are reticent or reluctant to talk, but I found it was quite the opposite. I think that when I arrived in Reading, Pennsylvania, they, um, by and large, people felt like they were invisible, that they were forgotten, that their stories weren't being heard. And so they welcomed me in, and often I'd have to um, pull myself away because people really wanted to talk. And needed to talk. And I think for a lot of people, it was incredibly th therapeutic. 
And this was all before 2016, because you said this, this was, was yeah. soon after Occupy Wall Street. You yeah, said, right? it was all it was well before 2016. And what was fascinating is particularly because um, Reading, Pennsylvania, is in is at the tail end of the Rust Belt. It's a city that had once been an industrial powerhouse. You know, there was steel, there were textiles. You know, the original um, um, outlet mall was in Reading, Pennsylvania. They sort of invented that. They invented that. the outlet mall, <laughs> Yeah, the they invented, mall. yes, they <laughs> invented, invented that. And um, um, what I felt when I was in that city is the real frustration, mm. you know, the real anger. And I could sense when I was there that there was rumblings of something to come. At the time, I really couldn't put language on what it was, but I, I felt in particular with a certain group of, of quote-unquote, margin, marginalized white working class that they were very angry in ways that I had never seen before. Mm. And, you know, you've spoken before about, um, like, sort of filling the gaps that are missing in American history and shining lights on these marginalized groups. Is that something that you're consciously thinking about as you're working on this? Yeah, absolutely. I think that as a writer, my primary interest has been... um, been exploring the stories of folks who are marginalized. You know, I think that has a lot to do with who I am. I'm an African-American woman who came in, came of age at a time when many people didn't place great value on the stories that I had to tell. And I grew up with a family that were was phenomenal storytellers. You know, we'd sit around the kitchen table or my grandmother's dining room table, and we'd spend hours telling each other's stories. And I realized at some point those are stories that really never left left the confines of either the dining room or our kitchen. And I found that incredibly frustrating. I thought there must be many stories like that that exist mm. that are not um, that are not making it to the stages um, in New York City or not making it to the screen, the small screens or the big screens. When you were in Reading, could you sense uh, like a social bubble percolating between the coast and, and the Midwest already at that time? And you know, because there's been much narrative made around the idea of social media creating these social bubbles that kind of contain people. Were you feeling that when you were there? Well, you know, it's it's so interesting because I remember arriving in Reading, Pennsylvania, and after our first trip, we pulled up into a gas station just on the outskirts of town, and um, a car pulled up next to us, and the guy began to engage us, and he said, where are you from? And we said, we're from New York City. And he's like, wow, can I give you a piece of advice? We're like, great. He's like, get out before sundown. <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> and so that's ominous. <laughs> it was really ominous, and, and but but I, I I think that to answer your question, there was a real sense that we were interlopers and that we were outsiders mm. in some place that either we were not necessarily welcome or that we didn't feel as though we belong belong there. And so I no one ever, um, with the exception of that, said you don't belong. But there was a real sense of outsider status. Mm-hmm. But, and it must have equally been difficult at times for you to express an empathy towards certain individuals. I know there's the Jason character in the play. Uh, and there, yeah, I mean, was there a lot of racial resentment that you were facing in the situation? You know, it's, 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 you know it's, it's interesting because I'm African-American and um, I'd sit down with people and so they wouldn't necessarily make their racism apparent right. um, immediately. But when you dug deeper, you 
began to feel bubbling just under the surface Mm -hmm. who they really were. And I think that there's a lot of unconscious racism in that people would talk to you not even understanding the extent of what they were saying. And the the character of Jason really comes about is someone who we met a guy named S- Steve, who was actually quite friendly and and forthcoming, and opened many doors uh, up for us in Reading, Pennsylvania. And after knowing him for about a year, um, we went to visit Reading um, during the summer, and he was wearing shorts and a t-shirt, and we discovered that he had um, racist tattoos. And that came as an absolute shock. And I think in part, um, I was able to access Jason because I had gotten to know Steve Mm -hmm. before I got to know Steve's subtext. (laughs) And so I was able to sustain the complexity of that man is to know who he was, to know sort of both sides of him, the side who was accessible to me and the side that was completely inaccessible and repugnant to me. Yeah, you've, I, I had a quote that you, you said once that I thought was especially profound on this subject. You said something along the lines of uh, replacing judgment with curiosity. Right. I mean, that's the phrase that I cling to is replace judgment with curiosity. And I think that I had to um, employ that a great deal when I, I went down to Reading is to is rather than coming in with my preconceived sort of big city notions is to really let go of that and try to meet people where they where they were. Mm-hmm. And to ask um, questions with a sense of compassion. When you're working on a play, are you trying to use it also as a tool to teach society in a way? It really depends on the piece of theater that I'm creating. When I was writing Ruined, I very specifically wanted to write a play that that was designed to heal. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was my intention. And and I spent a lot of time thinking about how I could. Do, do that. And with Sweat, I think that it wasn't so much de- designed as a play to heal, but as a play to um, spark conversation. Um, because I felt like there's so many questions that I have that go unanswered. And so I think that the play ends in, in a moment with no real conclusion, because I want people to leave the theater and have discussion mm-hmm. and to ask, well, what did you think that was about? And so, you know, I think of theater as mainly taking place in New York. Um, were you touring it around to that effort? Um, we, we did. It's it, when, when the play was originally um, produced at um, Oregon Shakespeare Festival, mm-hmm. which is in this very remote region of Oregon, um, Ashland, which is sort of hard hard to to get. And it was commissioned specifically by a program that they had called the American Revolutions. And so they had invited me to um, write a play about. A revolution, and the revolution that I selected was the deindustrial revolution. I was very interested in this moment in time because I felt like it was, as we know, it was going to really redefine. And what year was this? This was, I think, the commission was probably in 2013. Oh wow! Okay. But I felt like this is a moment that's really going to redefine um, um, America as we know it, and it turns out I was right. Yeah. Well, um, I'm, incre- I, I'm repeatedly surprised and amazed at how artists can see the future basically well you can see the future but i think that it's it's being in, it's being incredibly intuitive intuitive and being very open to um I, it's like there's a wonderful quote that i hold on to Werner Herzog 
um, which is the the role of an art, artist is to keep their eyes open when everyone else's are closed. Mm-hmm. And I think that very often we go into spaces and we are alert um, and we have some distance and perspective that perhaps others uh, uh, others don't. Um, but but to answer your question is when we decided that we wanted to produce the play, we felt that it wasn't enough just to have it settle in the proscenium, that it felt very much like the sort of play that wanted to be in dialogue with communities that were grappling with some of the issues of, of the play. And we raised money specifically to take it to communities. And the very first place that we we took it after we went to Oregon, then we came to New York, um, um, the public theater. And originally we we're going to tour um, the prison system, but for many reasons the prison system ended up turning us down. And we after the day after we closed, we took it down to Reading, Pennsylvania, and we did a, a sort of a stage reading for that community, and it was very um, emotional, beautiful. Um, experience for for all of us, not just um, those of us um, involved with the production, but the people in the audience. And from that, we decided that there was something there. There was some something that happened, a crackle um, that compelled us to take it on the road. That it felt like people really wanted to um, have conversation, and that this play was sparking those conversations. Like immediately after the play finished, people sort of stood up, clapped, and then they testified. You know, we thought it was going to be a Q and A, but they weren't really interested in asking us questions. They were more interested in sort of sharing um, their own experiences that were triggered by what they saw in the play. And it was—I have to say—it was for me one of the most beautiful um, experiences I've ever had in a theater. And so subsequently, we decided um, the following year that we were going to tour the play around um, the Rust Belt. And so we went to five states, and we very deliberately chose cities and small towns that were purple— um, because we're interested in places where people could have dialogue. We didn't mm-hmm. want people um, to people be sitting in their way. Their way. The we other. really wanted people. So the places who, who that had voted for Obama and then Trump, and we thought these are the people who, who we can reach. Mm-hmm. 2013, 2014, even now, people are only starting to scratch the surface at discussions and stories around economic precarity. Yes. People must have really been woken up by that, those early performances. I, yeah, I mean, I, I ho- hope so. I hope so. I think that... That in particular, when we're touring around, is that a lot of what I heard um, in the audience feedback is that people felt like we were telling their stories and they had felt very invisible. And in that moment, they felt seen. There's one man who sort of beautifully had spoken about his African-American man who spoke quite eloquently about his frustration of being locked out of his factory and and falling into a very deep depression and not even understanding um, the complexities of the emotions that he was feeling. He saw the play and he said at the end he was able to shed tears and let go of some of that burden he was carrying, even though his situation hadn't hadn't shifted at all he just felt that he was able to finally confront whatever those emotions he was having. And I thought that's incredibly beautiful. And that's one of the things that um, theater can do is that we can offer people catharsis. Hmm. That's really beautiful. Sweat took this kind of epic journey. And you talk about going into a city and spending a great deal of time with people. And one of the things that I was hyper aware of is that I didn't want to leave with a sense of being 
a carpetbagger. I didn't mm-hmm. want to poach the s- stories from the city and then disappear. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that that the team did, myself, um, Kate Orsky, who was the director of Sweat, um, Tony Gerber, who is a film um, directors, that we conceived a massive performance installation in um, the um, railroad station, which is the nexus point of the city of Reading, um, Pen- uh, Reading, and it's been abandoned since 1981. And really, when that railroad shut down, it, it was the the artery that permitted people to come and go. And when that was shut down, people were locked in the city. <laughs> And couldn't commute to Philadelphia, couldn't commute to uh, other other places. So we thought this this um, station had real symbolic resonance. And because it was located at the because it's um, Reading is really divided into four quadrants, and so it was located right in the center of the quadrant. Symbolically, it felt like the center of the city. And we decided we wanted to reanimate that space with the stories of the people. Mm-hmm. And the the notion was is to bring the people in these four quadrants together because it's a city that's fractured along racial and economic lines and there's very little interaction. And the the, the mantra that we use is we wanted to bring the, the homeless man and the mayor into one space and, and um, show them that they share one narrative, and which we ended up doing, which wow. was kind of amazing. So we animated this um, space with all of the interviews that we had done over the years. Mm. We we had actors and dancers and films, and the piece was done in in um, seven movements, mm-hmm. sort of moving from Reading in the past to Reading in the present. And the final movement um, was this this uh, video algorithm that we had created because we wanted to figure out how can we weave all the stories of the audience that come into into one narrative. And we spent a lot of time working on this algorithm. And so people, before um, they saw the show, they came into a little booth and we had a series of questions that we asked them. And then while they were in the show, we had these technicians who were weaving together all of their stories. And at the very end of the piece, um, those stories were played. And for the for ever, folks in the reading, it was it was the it was, it was the the sort of the the climax and the most wonderful moment. It was, it was video video images and interviews. And what was the title of that piece? It was called "This This Is Reading." Mm-hmm. And so, was that a permanent fixture there? It's or? not a permanent fixture. We were there for for July, and so we played three weekends. It was such an elaborate piece. One of the other things that we we did um, was we went around all around. Reading, and we took these beautiful portraits of people, and then we um, video mapped them on the building at night so that people would drive by to this abandoned area to look for themselves uh, on the building, which was quite beautiful. We called it the Jumbotron effect, is that people really want to see themselves if only for 15 minutes. We wanted people to be very excited about seeing themselves, and we called it the beauty treatment, is that we wanted to give Reading the beauty treatment, and and we endeavored to do that, is to tell their stories in ways that made them feel very good about their city. Mm-hmm. The thing I really appreciate about your work is the way that you engage with the real world around you and make your art a piece of that world. And in this case, you're literally making your art a piece of the world in I, these I video am. mappings. Yeah, I mean, and one of the fascinating things, because people often ask us as, as um, 
as playwrights, and I'm a playwright that's based in New York, New York City, and they ask us about our audiences. And are we frustrated that, you know, by and large, theater feels like it's designed for sort of a very homogenous middle class mm-hmm. audience? And um, how do we engage with audience? And we're so hell bent on bringing people in. And I thought, why do we have to bring people into the box? Why can't we go outside of the box? Mm-hmm. Why can't we find our audiences, which is what we endeavor to do with sweat? Is it's going to be harder? for us to bring our audience in, in than for us to bring our play to the audience. Did you grow up in a in a creative arts family or did you Well, I, I grew up in in Borm Hill in, in Brooklyn in a neighborhood um, which I always describe as the neighborhood that people pass through to get to other neighborhoods mm-hmm. and in doing so ended up creating this very unusual multicultural neighborhood and so my block which was Dean Street was a block that was somewhat tough. Um, It was populated by many boarding houses. It was um, a challenging place to grow up, but in many ways a beautiful place to to grow up. It was a working class neighborhood. My mother was a school teacher and my father was a social worker who was out of work for a good deal of my childhood because he was injured. And so, um, yeah, life was was hard, but that was never seemed to be a burden because my my parents were deeply invested in showing us a, a life that was better than perhaps the one that they had as children. Do you think that sort of American dream has stayed consistent today? Do you think that's kind of shifted a little bit, that, that idea of giving your future generation something better? I'm a parent, and one of the things that I'm hyper aware of is the anxiety that my children live with, which is an anxiety that I never experienced it. Um, They have the anxiety that perhaps they will not um, be able to achieve the things that we achieve. I mean, I live in a house, a brownstone in the center of Brooklyn, and I'm hyper aware that as an artist that if I left this brownstone, I would never, ever be able to come back to that neighborhood. That I... (laughs) that I'm very fortunate that my my parents' hard work resulted in this this, this beautiful house. But back then, they could buy a house for $10,000. And even then, that was a hardship for them, but they could save their money and do it. But I don't think that that same dream is accessible to me as an artist. And I don't know that that same dream is accessible to my children because of the, the economic realities in this moment. And so when you were younger growing up in Borum Hill... Yes. Um, when did you first realize you wanted to write and be involved in the arts? Um, I think from a very early age, I realized that I was um, interested in storytelling on some level or another. I always wrote plays, whether I was conscious of whether the, whether that was what I was doing. I used to create these little um, scenarios for my brother and myself to perform for my parents. <laughs> I never wrote them down, but we'd perform the plays for my parents who applauded in robust ways that in, in, encouraged me. And my parents, and you, you had asked the question whether my parents were artists. They weren't artists, but they were uh, people who surrounded themselves with artists and there were people who artists gravitated toward because I think that they always provide them with good meals and lots of wine. And so at any given moment in my house, you know, you might find sort of the writer Paul Marshall there or the artist Norman Lewis or Romeo Bearden who were very good friends with my parents. So I think while my parents were an artist, that art was part of the landscape of my childhood. 
That reminds me yes. of a story that I read about Intimate Apparel, one yes. of your early plays. Yes. Can you talk about how that was written and what inspired it? Uh, sure. Um, Intimate Apparel, for me, I consider it to be a, a breakthrough play because I feel like um, for the first time I was able as a writer just to access an emotional side of myself that I had never felt comfortable exploring. And it came um, about after my mother died. My mother died um, relatively young. She had Lou Gehrig's disease. And I don't know whether you know much about that disease, but it slowly robs you of the ability to move and eventually to speak. And um, I was caring for, for my mother. And it's only when I realized that she wasn't going to speak that suddenly I had all of these questions um, and she wasn't able to answer them. And that really made me quite sad. And she died with me knowing a great deal about my ancestors. And at the same moment that my mother was um, struggling with ALS, my grandmother was struggling with alcoholism and senile dementia. And so I couldn't ask her for any questions. And uh, when I was moving my grandmother out of her house to live with my brother, I discovered a photograph of one of my ancestors, my great-grandmother. And I realized I'd never seen this woman before. I didn't even know her name. I knew nothing about her. And that made me um, profoundly sad that my family hadn't invested enough in their own personal narratives to share them with the next generation. And so Intimate Apparel really came about um, out of this desire to understand who my ancestors were. And in particular, my great-grandmother who came to New York at the turn of the century who was a seamstress. And so I just was trying to reconstruct my past. And while Intermittent Apparel is not that story, it is a story inspired by my ancestors. That's That reminds me of how we talked about sweat a little bit, too, which is, you know, you do have these deeply personal connections, especially with Intimate Apparel. Yeah. I mean, obviously, very deeply personal connections to the stories you're telling, but you're also using uh, these other people's stories to help articulate that right. story. Yeah. Um, but which is something that I think that um, we as playwrights do. I, I, I know that um, many times when I'm, I'm writing, I use people who I know's voices as my lead line. <laughs> their cadences and their rhythms, um, th- those help me help inform the characters that I'm writing. I, I did see that you you said that the audience is kind of your final collaborator. Can you talk a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, I, I feel uh, often there there's some people who have very adversarial relationship with the <laughs> audience, but I really love my audience, and I do see them as my final co- collaborator, and I listen to them. I am so interested in in how how they lean into the play and they absorb the play in their bodies, and particularly when I'm developing a piece and I'm in previews, I'm watching them to see how they're moving with the piece when they get excited when. They they get bored. What um, you know? What 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 titillates them? What repels them? Can you actually go back and rewrite and rework some of the material? Yeah, certainly. During previews, I mean, it's plays are dynamic. We can change them constantly, even after previews. Um, I've I, sweat is a perfect example. Is that we did in Oregon? I made changes based on the way in which it moved and breathed with an audience. Then we went to Washington, made changes. And then even when we came to New York, I was continuing um, to shift the play, particularly when it came to New York. We're in the midst of the elections and the play lived and breathed 
in a whole new way. And I responded to that. And I think that's what's excited and exciting about making theater is that it, 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 it's, it's like a living, breathing organism that can evolve. Wow. Well, I'd be remiss if we didn't mention or talk about Ruined a little bit. I mean, sure. that was the first play to earn you the Pulitzer. Yes. Um, could you talk a little about what led to that? Um, sure. Um, R- Ruined came came about when I was in uh, in conversation with my collaborator, Kate Worski. Um, we had been talking about wanting to do a modern adaptation of, of Mother Courage um, set in the Congo. Um, and when we're having the discussion, the Congo was in the midst of of a, a massive civil w- war, and um, we thought it might it was a massive civil war, an intractable war that felt like it was never going to end. And we thought it really had um, some parallels to the Hundred Year War that Bertolt Brecht was talking about when he he wrote um, Mother Courage. And on a whim, we decided um, because we couldn't find a great deal of information about women in in that conflict zone, we decided that we were going to go to East Africa and actually interview women. And it's the first time that I'd ever done that kind of research, and it was kind of bold um, action for a, a playwright. I mean, I just don't do, do that, but I felt compelled to go, and we found ourselves um, in in Uganda, um, and we had wanted to go to the border, and the day we arrived, there was a, a great deal of, of conflict in the border, and people recommended that we not go, and so we organized refugee women who were coming out of Congo um, in, in Kampala to come talk to us, and our assumption, once again, is that maybe one or two women would come, and we were overwhelmed by the number of women who who had walked, in some cases, 10 miles to speak to us. And so um, we spent just one day talking to as many women as possible. And once again, I said to them, it's like, I am not a doctor. I am not a lawyer. I'm not... um, I'm not a journalist. I can do very little from you other than listen to your story from beginning to end, and that's what we did. And then subsequently, after hearing those stories, it really reframed how I wanted to tell the Mother Courage story. In particular, when I shared with the women the phrase Mother Courage, and I heard them say that the words Mother Courage, um, it, it entered their bodies in ways that were deeply affecting. And I, and I thought that this European construct that we were working with was no longer applicable, and that what was happening to them um, was... Um, something that I didn't understand in the moment. And I thought, if I don't understand, the rest of the world doesn't understand. I thought, I need to amplify their tales. And I I left, and then I ended up getting a Guggenheim grant to go back to East Africa and spend much more time interviewing um, refugee women. And I, I went all over, inter- interviewed um, Somali women, women, um, Sudanese women, Congolese women who were fleeing armed conflict. And then um, a year later, I went back to East Africa, to Rwanda very specifically, to look at how art could be used as a tool, of, tool for healing and to talk to um, women who had survived the genocide. Well, I mean, it almost sounds yeah. like your work process is really similar to documentary production. It, it, it was really s- similar. And, and at the time, I, I I did not know what I was doing. I knew why I was doing it, but I just had this overwhelming desire to understand. And that understanding is what led me on this three-year journey. And also, I felt like you talk about um, telling stories of mar- marginalized people and and um, bringing stories into the light. I thought no one is telling their stories. 
And I know that I was an, uh, was an outsider, that I was this African-American woman in, um, in Africa, and I was very self-conscious of that. But I thought, I still feel this incredible connection to these women. And there was a, a moment um, w- when I was standing with a, a group of the refugee women in, in Uganda, and I took this picture with them. And this is back when we we're still taking pictures with a camera. <laughs> <laughs> and I was wearing this very beautiful, colorful boo-boo that I had got, gotten. Um, and most of the women were wearing um, um, boo-boos as well, which are, are dresses. Mm-hmm. And maybe a few weeks after the trip, when I got the pictures back, I was looking at it, um, the photograph, and I didn't even realize that I was in it. And at that moment, I thought, I'm not telling their story. I'm telling my story, that I am one of these women, but for the grace of God. Wow. That must have been a really yeah. profound moment. Yeah, it was a profound moment. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it seems like, you know, through your stories here, it's it's like the, the storyteller really is a conveyor and a, mm-hmm. and a message giver yes. of people. What do you think the role of the artist should be? Um, well, I, I think in 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 this moment in particular, but I think in any, any moment, I think that our role as an artist is really to be in dialogue with the culture, mm-hmm. um, is to ask difficult questions of, of the culture, to interrogate the culture, and also to celebrate the culture. I mean, I think that it's multifaceted and it's really difficult to say precisely what our role is, but I do think that engagement in a rigorous way, is our job. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for coming in. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. The American Masters podcast was created by Michael Cantor and is produced by Joe Skinner. And co-produced by Josh Hamilton with sound engineering by Josh Broom, Evan Joseph, and John Berman. For American Masters, we thank series producer Julie Sachs and associate producer Christiana Lombardo. Our theme music is by Infinity Shred. We'd also like to thank the American Masters interns for their contributions to this episode, Christina Darko and Giovanna Drummond. Thanks for listening. And please don't forget to give us a rating or a review and tell a friend about us or share a favorite episode. See you in a couple weeks.